Welcome to the podcast of the Sunday Celebration from the Center for Spiritual Living in Huntsville, Alabama. We hope you feel the grace, the beauty, and the love of our community as you hear the message of the week. So we come to that place that we're so familiar with, but oftentimes we forget. It's a place of abiding peace, of unlimited joy. You just have to look at the face of a little child and you're there because they live in that place. They're so pure, they're so connected to source that if you have the honor to sit with a little goofball or maybe hold a puppy dog or a kitty cat in your arms, or if you're Nancy and Lee, you see the turtles clustering on the logs in the stream, knowing that they're all celebrating a sense of belonging to the one life. And you realize there is no them, there is only us. And so this Thanksgiving week, We give thanks for all our relations, the so many of them, the trees that are the stewards on the planet that breathe oxygen so that we can breathe, the incredible cloud structures that are all around us as the fronts come through, the dancing clouds in the cosmos. And if you just stop long enough to observe, it sweeps you away in the mystery of this vastness that we've all come to take for granted. And so this Sunday, I'm going to explore the gifts that we never see, the gifts that are all around us, the gift of the air that we breathe, of the sun that uh, provides us with life itself, with the ability to see each other with compassionate eyes, knowing that Whatever we see in this world is really a reflection of our own self. So we begin to see consciously, not from the place of the reactive self, where we would call somebody other, but from that awakened self that says, you are my brother and you are my sister, and we are the family of humanity on this beautiful planet Earth, which is a sacred place that we have been given in order for us to be stewards of this sacred space that we share. And so with a playful curiosity, we're going to open our eyes and we're going to explore the space that is between us and to confer a great blessing on it. Because if this is the month of Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving starts with a blessing. And when you start giving thanks for everything, what happens is that it changes you. Even in the Bible, it says, in all things give thanks. It's so funny, I, my neighbor lady, she has, she's a single woman and she was having a big Thanksgiving and all her family was descending upon her. And so Trey and I went to 
the store and we bought a whole bunch of, she calls them poinsettias, but she's from the South. And so Trey said, we don't need six poinsettias. And I said, well, I'll just give them away as gifts. So she was having the big ceremony. So I brought the poinsettia to her and um, she was so grateful. She sent me a photograph of sitting on her wood burning stove and, and all the family descended. And you realize it just creating these little bridges with your neighbor and we're having a conversation. And I realized that we don't, we're not on the same page on practically anything. And yet with that poinsettia, we build a little bridge of love. And so what if we get to do that in, in our world in a way that we learn to listen to one another? Um, I was informed just yesterday that my neighbor that walks his dog past the house, I know the dog better than I know the owner, which is usually the case. And he got the dog at the pound. He'd had it for a year. It was so sweet. He said it changed his wife's and his life. And then he has the massive heart attack. And now the dog is having a heart hard time because it was so attached to the owner. She's having a hard time. And the friend that told me, I said, well, you know, his spirit is still there. And people don't want to hear that when they've lost a form. But we don't notice that it's more than just the visible form of the neighbor being gone. His essence is still there. Um, this morning, I was pulled to my little book, Letters to Strongheart by J. Allen Boone. And Strongheart was probably the most famous dog in American history next to Rin Tin Tin. He was the German shepherd in all the silent movies that was the hero for everyone. And J. Allen Boone was his trainer. And all of a sudden, in the fame of Strongheart, he dies. And this book is his tribute to Strongheart who never died. And so J. Allen Boone travels all over the world and it's called Letters to Strongheart. He has conversations with the spirit that never died. Well, now you've heard me talk about Bert who shows up on Sunday mornings. Well, because Bert's still here. You know, when I get to church early, I open my little camera and there's Bert with Speck and there's Bert with his head on Humphrey. And there was Bert up there in Maine and he was cleaning the baby this morning and I watched him clean her ears and then he cleaned her eyes. And guess what walked into the cabin? Moose. Moose was the wolf that lived up the road. And Moose, I said, and I've got him on the camera. Well, there you are, Moose. He walks in and what do you think Bert and Speck did to Moose? Well, they came over and they started playing with him. And you know, Moose, I woke up, Moose had come into the cabin and he went and took Baby Speck's bone. Because you know, this was his territory. He lived up in Maine. He lived with the old man down the street. So Moose would come into your cabin looking for dog bones. And now most people would be afraid if a wolf walked into your cabin, but not Bert and Speck because they recognize, you know, there's a camaraderie among the, among the species. So Strongheart dies and J. Allen Boone is bereft but then he informs us that what is real does not die. And I wanna give this as a gift so that we can tune in to these gifts that we take for granted and we never acknowledge, the gift of life that never died. This is for you, Michael. So he says, people tell me Strongheart is dead and I hear it everywhere, the newspapers, the radio, they're proclaiming it to the ends of the earth. Strongheart, the world's greatest animal actor is dead. They're saying it emphatically with finality like Supreme Court judges handing down an irrevocable decision. But I wish to point a finger about the size of a lighthouse at all of them and shout to them, now listen, he says, my funeral friends, I happen to be a very personal friend of Strongheart. And as his personal friend, I should like to ask all of you, just what do you think that Strongheart was made of? Was he made of so many pounds of hide and bones and stuffing? Was he just a material body? 
with something animating it on the inside, which has now stopped functioning? Well, if you think that, you are mistaken, he says. Very much so mistaken. You may have been looking at something like that, or at least thought you were, with those material eyes of yours. You know, we want to tend to objectify things on the outside when it's the subjective that's important. It's what your essence, what your soul is. So he's telling this to the world. But what you were actually seeing were his qualities. You weren't seeing Strongheart. And this is what the part I loved. That's what that dog was made of. And that's what you and I are made of, qualities of the soul. And so he says, let me name a few of these qualities so that you might acknowledge those gifts that you don't acknowledge sometimes. Strongheart embodied goodness. He embodied loyalty. He taught me understanding and enthusiasm. Oh, he was so enthusiastic to play with his ball. It made my days. He was loyal. He was, he, he, he was devoted and sincere. He had a noble affection to him. He had intelligence, honesty, confidence, strength, gentleness, happiness. My God, the list goes on and on and on, as they say in the South. He was grateful. He was appreciative. He was trustworthy. He had endurance and integrity and humility. He was pure and unselfish and fearless. He was filled with love. <laughs> He's kind of riding a wide horse of those things that we don't acknowledge. He said, qualities, my funeral friends, are what Strongheart was made of. So those qualities of Stronghearts can no more die and be buried in a hole in the earth than a collection of sunbeams could be buried. He says they are eternal and Strongheart is just as eternal as those qualities. So let me say that just once more. Strongheart is just as eternal as his qualities and what we are are eternal beings and when we begin to know that and not forget it, well, then we approach life in a different way. We see the sacredness of everything. And we begin to notice the gifts that we didn't notice before. I saw an interview uh, the day after Thanksgiving between Howard Stern and Bruce Springsteen. They've done a, uh, an interview, two great giants, uh, and it brought Howard Stearns to tears. It's going to be shown tonight on NBC. You can also watch it on HBO Max. And um, it, Howard Stern says it's the greatest interview of his life. And so just like the Strongheart thing, you've got two men in their 70s and they're at the, um, the final aspect of their careers. And you know, Bruce Springsteen is a giant and he never does interviews. So Howard Stern, called him and Howard Stern's so COVID afraid he never leaves his apartment in Manhattan. So Springsteen says, I will do the interview if, with you if you will leave isolation and meet me in the studio. So leaving his isolation with his fear and leaving New Jersey, wherever they came into the studio and they did this interview together. And um, I heard parts of it and it brought tears to my eyes because um, at this stage of their evolution, they moved into the elder place in their lives. They see the grace of their history. And it turns out both of them, and this is very common in life, there's the father-son dynamic, where the father so desperately wants the father's approval. And in both of their cases, their fathers were very tough men who considered themselves, their sons, not aspiring to what the father would have. Um, Bruce Springsteen's was a, a dock worker. He was a blue collar worker and his son played in a band. You know, he, you're going to be a nobody, you're, a, you're an artist, you're, you know. So his father never approved of him. Howard Stern's father 
looked upon his son as a ne'er-do-well with his radio show and his DJ and, you know, talking on the radio to people doing interviews. Get yourself a real job. Get a job. So here they had both these fathers that didn't approve of their sons. And now you have this interview in their 70s where they're reflecting on their fathers as the perfect ones for them. It was the shadow side of the father that launched Bruce Springsteen's music because he sang about people like his father, Gloria Road. And, and even when his first band, he said one of his musicians from the first band was dying, this was recently. And so Bruce Springsteen went to him, he was dying of cancer and Bruce brought his guitar and he sang him out. He sang the songs and then he wrote the song, The Last One Standing in Honor of His Friend. So his life had developed so much depth and meaning. And Howard Stearns, likewise, had a father who was very critical. He was very New York. Be a somebody, not a loser, you're a loser. And so Howard Stearns became good friends with a young Donald Trump, and they learned to create a whole charisma around that way of doing things. And he said, and I used my father's bravado as the voice that brought the people in because they want a New Yorker who will tell it like it is. And my father did it better than everyone. So I just put on my dad and I express dad. And he says, I attribute my success to, to my father. But he said to Bruce Springsteen, I'll give you a hint. He said, I have all these voices that I use. You know, the voice of the obnoxious New Yorker and the voice of this one in the subway. And he started doing all his voices. And I thought, well, I only have Bert to rely on. But, you know, Bert's good <laughs> enough for me. He shows up with his sweet little ways. And I can't imagine being tormented by all those voices in your head. But listening to that interview, I had tears in my eyes saying, what a sacred time for these two individuals to be finally transparent. This is who I am at this stage of my evolution. So could we look for those beautiful gifts in life that we might have said, we're not a gift. Your dad was the perfect dad for you, and so was your mom. I've been having talks to my, my two living sisters. I have the twin sister, who is certifiable, and then I have the young evangelical sister, who is, I think, changing. She's evolving. She's the one that said, I chose to be this way, and I could choose to be another way that would be acceptable to the evangelicals. And I said to her that I think I was born this way. And so we've had this ongoing conversation for my whole life. But I thought that the beautiful thing was she has only one grandson, Will, and his favorite color is pink. And he said to my sister, he calls her Oma. And Oma is German for grandmother, but he calls her Om. And he's three. He says, Om, Om, you need to get some pink yarn and knit me a, a baseball glove. And she says, I don't know how to knit. He says, Om, get some pink yarn and we'll, we'll figure it out. I want a pink baseball glove. Now, he's not afraid at age three to talk about a pink baseball glove. And I thought, now that is my nephew right then and there. So you, and then, of course, my twin sister, I hadn't spoken to her in a while. And I said to my little sister, how's she doing Thanksgiving? And uh, she called the police the other day because she couldn't find her car keys. And they said, ma'am, I'm sorry, but we can't come out for your car keys. She says, but I, I can't go to Thanksgiving without my car to drive to the family. And they said, ma'am. I'm sorry, this isn't an emergency. She's in Idaho, you know, Caldwell, Idaho. So my little sister said, well, did you ever find the keys? She says, oh, they were in my pocket. Now that's my sister. They were in the pocket all along. So yeah, so we, we, we embrace the life that we've been given and we cherish it because it's got the gifts for us. I, I'm basing this whole month on a little book called Bless the Space Between Us by John O'Donohue. And it started off this month by talking about to create a new beginning, that every day, every year, we're entering into a new beginning. My birthday is this Thursday or Friday. 
Every time I have a birthday, I think I'm launching into a new year. And then we've got a new year coming up in January. And so um, I, I decided in January to do the series on we're on the brink of everything. What if we saw that we were at the threshold of a whole new life at whatever age you find yourself at? You know, so many of us are survivors. I survived the heart attack. People here have survived COVID. If you've survived COVID, raise your hand. Yes. Now look at those survivors out there. I mean, Rupa's telling me that he nearly drowned. He doesn't know how to swim. And so he decided he was going to go swimming in the ocean. And he was playing out in the water and it was right about neck high. And before you knew it, he'd been pulled out by the riptide and he was out there floundering. And so something in me said, well, I watched a YouTube video on how to swim. I said, Rupe, have I taught you nothing? You're not going to learn to swim by watching a YouTube video. But something in his brain clicked and he started moving his hands and his little legs. And he said, I've got to cry out for the universe. And there was somebody windsurfing on with a thing and, and Rupe's crying, help, help. And the guy scoops around, this God coming, scoops him with his hand. First time he didn't make it, second time he went around. Now that's life, giving you a new leash on life, so to speak. It's a good name for a rescue organization. So yeah, so so John O'Donohue talks about we're always entering into a new beginning. And it's so funny, I've been looking for those things that I don't normally see. And I saw Margaret Atwood. She's the one that wrote The Handmaid's Trail. She lives up in Canada. And she's an elderly woman now. And she reflects on the consciousness of America and how some draconian things are happening down there in the States. She says, I noticed that Florida has passed laws against the gay community and all this sort of stuff. And she says, you know, we have always been on the threshold of losing our democracy. She says there is tyranny and there is chaos. And then there is this thing called a democracy in the middle. So she says, can we be aware of how to make our democracy stronger by speaking truth to things that are really unsettling in your country? And, you know, one of the unsettling things is how we approach our trans gay community, how we approach women, how we approach minorities. I saw that there's this movie called Till. It's about Emmett Till, the young boy who came from Chicago to the South 57 years ago. He was 14 years old, Anastasia. And his mother from Chicago said, now you be careful in the South. You better be nice to those white people. You say, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, because things happen down there. And he was accused of whistling at a woman in an apartment store. I mentioned the word accused. We don't know that it really happened. And he was taken out and lynched. And his mother, when she saw her only son in the coffin, so brutally abused, she said, do not close the coffin. I want the world to see and so that change can arise. Now, they've made a movie, Whoopi Goldrich. She said it was her whole mission in life to make a movie called Till to show lest we do this again. And you know what's so ironic? That was 57 years ago that he was lynched in the South, and it took 57 years before we made it illegal to have lynch laws. We're finally illegal. Up until then, you could go out and lynch people. Now, is this crazy? And then this idea, gay people are afraid to go to states where they have the carry carry thing. You can carry guns and, you know. And so be aware of that, always in the beginning. So last week, I talked about coming to ourselves, the week before last. And he does a beautiful blessing for coming to ourselves. I sent it to a friend who was, uh, who had never forgiven somebody. He was, um, he said, I'll hate you till the day I die. So my prayer partner said, would you please send that blessing from John O'Donohue? The blessing I sent to my prayer partner this week was, um, how does it start? Oh, may all that is unforgiven in you be released. That sets you free. If you have any unforgiveness work, may all that is unforgiven in you be released. May your fears yield their deepest tranquility. 
Could we allow that which we are most afraid? When you go on that bicycle, and Anastasia, would that those fears yield the deepest tranquility because you're moving into a Zen moment? And then the third one, and may all that is unlived in you blossom in your future with grace and love. And may all that is unlived, is a, I've got a lot of living to do. Twist and shout, twist and shout, you know? So could all that is unlived in you be allowed to blossom in your life, in your future with grace and love? Well, then you're not, you're not trying to outline, you're not trying to control, you're not trying to tell the universe, this is what it's gotta look like. You're surrendering and you're trusting and you're allowing something to emerge. Well, I kind of like that one. And then last week I explored the idea of the one family, that we're all interconnected. I love that you did the Friendsgiving thing, That's it, that we're all family. I, I saw this documentary that Reva had spoken about and it was William Shatner who recently went into outer space on that Elon Musk thing where he took a handful of people out in space and then they came back. And just like with Edgar Mitchell, it changed him because he realized at age 91, he was born in 1931 in March, and he said, when I came back into the atmosphere of the planet, I realized what a sacred space we have. And William Shatner said, five billion years of evolution. That's five billion years of evolution has taken this living organism called Earth into a place where we have the most exotic creatures. I was watching David Attenborough last night on, on the planet and how many frogs and birds and lichen and trees. And But William Shatner said, after all that time, we could destroy this five billion year old thing if we aren't conscious of the environment. And so William Shatner said, um, he said, I live in LA and I had to drive up to San Francisco. He's in his 90s. And he says, you know, when I used to get in the car and do a long distance drive, my, my grade on my car would be covered with insects. Remember that? I remember it as a kid, they'd be covered with insects. He said, in the whole trip from LA to San Francisco, only one bug was on my thing. Now he says, so what has happened to all those beautiful insects that create up this beauty of planet Earth? We get to ask ourselves that. So yeah, so he, 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 he was um, expressing an imperative. And what he said, I love this, at 91, he says, what we need to be courting is our sense of wonder. This is for you, Shay, and our sense of awe. He says, because the innocence within us wants to hold this planet as sacred, the cynic in us says, oh, let's just cut all the trees down and to hell with it, you know? But the one that recognizes everything is interconnected is the one that will save our planet. I know, it's, it's worth taking a breath on that one. So let me give you his little bless. This is um, the gifts of the senses that we never notice. He said, there's this sensorium of life. We have sight, but do we see the beauty with these eyes or do we see what we're concluding? We have this ability to hear. Do we let that sound? Can we hear what isn't being said? Can we tune into the music of the spheres and the birds that are singing to us? Can we use the sense of touch, not as just uh, something we take for granted, but we went for a hike yesterday, um, Adam and Rupe and I, and we went down to Big Springs Park, and you know where the water shoots out of the, the rock? The rock is covered with this velvet moss. And I said now, and Rupe said, I would love to have a relationship like the moss with the rock. And I said, that's Tantra, where you are one with one another. You're not separate. Now see, now that was something he noticed, just by noticing the beauty and, and and so he's saying this, so here's this, this is for you to enhance your ability to, mm, in the sensorium of life. 
So take this for yourself in the first person. May the touch of your skin register the beauty of the otherness that surrounds you. There really is no other. You know, touch the face of a baby and feel how sweet that is. Or pet your dog. I love picking up the old pug now and his little armpits are a little hot and thing and he, he snorts when you pick him up and there's just something about holding him in your arms. Adam knows that. You should see him with Kiwi. He's got this ancient uh, Chihuahua uh, Great Dane. She's a big, fat, little Chihuahua thing. But he carries her on his shoulders and you'd think that they had become one. It's just so precious to see. May your listening be attuned to the deepest silence where sound is honed to bring the distance home. Oh, I think I have to do that one again. And may your listening be attuned to the deepest silence where sound is honed to bring the distance home. You begin to hear, silence is the language of God. So what if in listening to the silence, then the silence in the tree begins to penetrate the silence in David. And there's this kind of tantric experience. He goes into fragrance. May the fragrance of a breathing meadow refresh your heart and remind you that you are a child of the earth. May the fragrance of the breathing meadow, it's all alive, it's all breathing, refresh your heart and remind you that you are a child of the earth. On that David Attenborough thing last night, he had a thing with the, the flamingos. And I must have seen a thousand flamingos and they were all on the different degrees of pink. And the pinker you are, Kim Brown, the pinker you were, the more chances you had of finding a female. Now the females were white and the males were pink and the pinks, stand up Raul, the pinks always have to show off their pink. And the pinker you were, the better you were at finding the other flamingo. And I thought, they're not so different than us, really. I mean, the pinker you are, the better you're... May the fragrance of a breathing meadow refresh your heart and remind you that you are a child of the earth. And when you partake of food and drink, may, you, may your taste quicken to the gift and the sweetness that flows from the earth. You know, we've just had Thanksgiving and I don't like to eat to get full. I like to eat to experience the love that's in the cooking. And Trey and I are trying to watch our sugar intake and not eat so many desserts, but we did treat ourselves to a blueberry pie from Fresh Market. And so he cut a little piece of the blueberry pie and we put it with some soy yogurt ice cream so that it was healthy, supposedly, and Gigi's homemade liqueur over the top, which made it sinful. And we ate this little piece of pie and the tastes and the fragrance and the, the warmth. We heated the, the blueberry pie up and the pop of the blueberry and the, but the thing that got me the most was the pie crust, the little taste of pie crust. Because all of a sudden, I'm six years old, my grandmother's in the kitchen with her rolling pin, and she's rolling out the pie crust. And she would make these homemade pies, but there was always leftover crust. So she put it on a cookie sheet, she put it in the oven, and when that little bit of crust came out, we kids got to eat the crust. And as I'm eating the crust on that pie, I'm remembering my sweet Norwegian grandmother, big woman, you know, but she baked and baked and baked and baked. No wonder she was so large, but I remembered that the gift and sweetness that flows from the earth. And may your inner eye see through the surfaces and gleam the real presence of everything that meets you. Could we begin to see with this intuitive vision that tunes in to each other at the level of the soul? I'll say that again. May your inner eye see through the surfaces and glean the real presence 
of everything that meets you. I'm going to be teaching this little class for four weeks in December. We'll start this Wednesday. And it's all about um, Emerson's. And it's living from your soul, the seven basic premises that Emerson taught. And, you know, there's a ton. Of, that's really reducing Emerson. You talk about cliff notes. Basically, nothing outside can harm you that seek God within you, you know, and uh, in oneself lies the whole world. He teaches you how to live from the soul. Are we willing to live from the soul? The soul sees things differently. You know, the soul sees strong heart is not dead. Whereas the one that deals at an objective level says, yeah, he's gone. No, no, he's not gone. Could we live in that other sea from that different perspective? So here's last little paragraph. And may your soul beautify the desire of your eyes that you might glimpse the infinity that hides in the simple sights that seem worn to your usual eyes. He's asking you to see a bigger reality than this limited finite reality. I'll say it again, because you're learning to see from your soul, to touch with your soul. You know, when, when Rube hugs me, it's a soul hugging the soul and it's the same love meeting itself. It's not Rube and David. Could we have that soulful experience? Again, may your soul beautify the desire of your eyes so that you may glimpse the infinity that hides in the simple sights that seem worn to our usual eyes. Well, that means you're gonna find infinity in the smallest of things, Miss Mary? Well, I think so. Could be in a mushroom, Terry, what do you think? Or maybe in a plant. Well, there's some special plants out there, I've been told. And so let's go to the simplest of all things, which is the bee. This man dedicated this book to me. It's called The Hive. And he said it was my enthusiasm for his poetry. And Seamus, I see your book of poetry. I guess I need to be more enthusiastic. He published this book because of my enthusiasm. And it's called The Hive. It's a book we read for its honey. Again, it's a metaphor. The humblest of things point the way to the greatest of things. And at the very beginning of the book, he quotes Rainer Maria Rilke. And this is what he says. We are the bees of the invisible. We wildly collect the honey of the visible to store it in the great golden hive of the invisible. Well, I think you need to do that one again because that's kind of profound and I don't think they got it. I kind of see people looking miffed out there. I think I do too, Bert. He says, we are the bees of the invisible. We wildly collect the honey from the visible and store it in the great golden hive of the invisible. Well, we're taking something in, Michael. I think it's bigger than what we are. And so here's how he dances with this idea. Um, I don't know what I was doing with this book yesterday. I was reading all the poetry and I got kind of enamored of it. But let me go to the end. Here it is. He says, O bee of the universe, give us the light necessary to find our dark honey. O bee of the universe, give us the light to find your dark honey. I changed it to my dark honey. And then at the end, he goes to this swing. And what is the honey? Inside me, he says, it feels as if the bees have begun turning what's been brought back from the visible to the invisible into honey, filling the dark comb of my soul with its thick light. Whoa, I think that's rather profound and sticky. I'm gonna read it again. We're taking the bee of our soul to the visible and we're extracting the honey of the divine and we're taking it in. Uh, we're playing with metaphor Anastasia. Can you play, put the metaphor hat on? I think we'll do it again. Inside me, he says, it feels as if the bees have begun turning what's been brought back into honey, 
filling the dark comb of my soul with its thick light. Oh, that's what I do every Sunday up here. I try to get you drunk on the honey of life. Yeah, in order to do that, I have to do it myself. And he quotes the very end of the book, his last little poem. He said, what questions does the bee continually pose to the flower whose answer is always her sweetness? Whoa, as the bee, you drink the flower, the nectar from the flower, right? And the flower offers its nectar freely. It doesn't say, you can't have any, you know, because it's only for Kenny. Brittany can't have any. No, the flower says, you can both drink my nectar. What question does the bee continually pose to the flower whose answer is always its sweetness? So what if we get to play with those little metaphors so that they can bring us home to a greater realization that we're all interconnected? When I do my Dance with the Beloved workshop, I'll split the room into half. They say, okay, you're the butterflies and you're the flowers. And then I say, okay, flowers, I want you to all stand in the center of the room, close your eyes and open yourself to be pollinated by the bees. Now I said, bees, you be respectful. Bees, you be respectful. And flowers, you allow as many bees who want to make love to you, make love to you. In a respectful way, butterflies. And so it's all about receiving and giving love. And it's harder to be a flower because you have to let a total stranger come up and maybe touch your face and put their arms around you. I did this when I was in, uh, in early 2000s up in uh, England. They wanted me to do a workshop on um, feel the fear and do it anyway. And I said, okay, I don't really know how to do that workshop, but I do know that people are most afraid of intimacy. So I did the A's and B's. I did the flowers and the butterflies. And at, after, when they did the wind up at that circle of love, this English woman said, I've never felt the love of God before with this total stranger stroking my face when I was a flower. I said, well, if that's what it took for, here, for her to feel God for the first time in her life, when a total stranger was embracing her, I guess she moved through her fear of love and received the love. Those little things we don't recognize. So my invitation is let's be vigilant to the grace and to the gifts that are all around us. And there's such little gifts. We were out in the garden, you know, Mike, we had this beautiful garden, but what happens with a big garden is she needs to be tended. And just like the leaves must fall, well, once the leaves fall, they gotta be picked up. Otherwise you got piles of leaves everywhere. So if you treat these chores as beautiful opportunities to give integrity back to your garden. I watched Birdman of Alcatraz, that beautiful story of this prisoner who'd been in jail for 52 years. And he wrote a book at the end of his long career about the rehabilitation of a prisoner. And he says, you don't rehabilitate prisoners by making them obey and beating them into submission. You re the word rehabilitate comes from the word habile, which means dignity. You rehabilitate someone when you give them back their dignity. And so when I heard him say that, I thought, you give a garden back its dignity when you trim it back and you shape it up. Gigi knows what I'm talking about. Each tree wants to be shaped and then it has its dignity. Did your lemon tree survive the vacation? Kind of, sort of. I planted out the coffee tree outside. I took your inspiration. Coffee tree didn't make it. But then there is no death. I just read you the qualities of the coffee tree live on. And then you kind of laugh and you try to make the best of a crazy situation. So yeah, to find, to find the gifts in the littlest of things. Um, Christmas is coming up and I live with a curmudgeon. Ebenezer Scrooge could have been his middle name, but he does have this thing about Christmas. It brings out his, um, his little boy. And I, what Trey likes more than anything is to have the lights out on the shrubs. 
and it's almost like an engineering feat. And so if we get out all the lights and we try to do it as a family. I pull the lights out, he puts the lights on. I pull the lights out, he puts the light on. We have a, our first vehicle is a 1986 Nissan truck. She gets filled up with gas once a year. So we took her to the gas station this year. We put in $10 worth of gas. Her name is Betty White. And, um, and we got the Christmas tree. We put her in Betty White, we came home and uh, we carried the tree in. And then it was like watching Laurel and Hardy try to put a tree up because one was carrying the tree, the other was putting the stand down and the tree kept falling over. And so then you start yelling at each other, you're doing it wrong. So one gets down, one does the screwing, one does the holding, one does the holding, one does the screwing. And after maybe an hour of yelling and doing this kind of thing, she is on a slight tilt, but she's standing and she's there. And of course, and it doesn't end with that because then you have to get out the ornaments and all the Christmas paraphernalia. And then the worst was the Christmas mugs. There is a bag of Christmas mugs in the basement and you bring them up and you put them in the dishwasher. All the mugs from, from out of the closet and all the Christmas mugs go in there because they're family, they're friends. We've had them for 50 years. So the Christmas mugs are in there with the tilting tree, the lights outside and all is well as we plan to do whatever it is you're supposed to do. I have a birthday coming up, we have an anniversary coming up, and then we have Christmas coming up, all within the short period of a month. What shall we do? Try to find the gifts in the things that you never notice, the little things, the smile of a friend. And so it's uh, almost time for the bell, Raul. Doesn't he look nice in his pink shirt? <laughs> You know, when I married him and Gigi here, I, I love surprises and Raul is always filled with surprises. And um, so before we did the wedding ceremony, he sang, I needed the shelter of someone's arms. And there you were. I needed someone to understand my ups and downs. And I said, did you have to do this when you know what a mess I'm going to be? And so by the time I got my composure that I could do the... Yeah, and so what if that's, it's those little things that make life so precious, you know? Like Tia singing, twist and shout in the morning. And all the neighbors said, no. Raul, when you're ready to ring the bell. Oh, yes. For whom the bell tolls. So we enter into this sacred moment, having touched that place of wonder and awe as we hear the sound of a child in the background to remind us that there is that innocence inherent within all life. Yes. And it's freely expressed. It's not suppressed, but it's allowed. And it wants to dance and it wants to notice how everything is magical. I had a magical little boy when I grew up. I would talk to flowers. I would fall into flowers. I drew butterflies because I recognized their beauty and their fragility and their interconnectedness. I hate to admit it, but I would catch fireflies and keep them in a little jar and watch them go on and off. I would never do that today. But there was something in that innocence that said, I'm in awe of the majesty of planet Earth. And I sensed that you were to go into outer space and come back as Edgar Mitchell discovered, that this is a beautiful living planet upon which we abide. And when we begin to see our relations 
in their majesty, in their mm, wisdom. There's such wisdom in nature. It then begins to shift the way we perceive things. John O'Donohue in his little book, at the very end, he says this. He says, blessed be the gifts that you never notice. The gift of your health, the gift of your eyes that behold the world, the gift of your heart to feel the world's sadness. And above all, the gift of your breath, which is spirit, to breathe the nourishment of the distance that's made inanimate by earth. And the greatest is the breath, to breathe the nourishment of distance made intimate made intimate by the earth. So the one breath of life is breathing all of us and we meet in the breath. Isn't that nice to know? The one breath, one spirit, and we are it. And so we begin to notice as the leaves fall that there are things in our lives that need to fall away. But the inherent life that perhaps goes dormant for a while resurrects itself in a new way of expressing life. And when one thing falls away, another is yearning to give birth. And so we open to that emerging evolution within ourselves and all around us, knowing that we are here to assist one another in assuming the consciousness that's required. And above all, probably the greatest gift that we don't notice is the gift of awareness. Yeah, we have life experiences and we want to rail about them, but there is all the while sitting, stretched in smiling repose, this aspect of consciousness that is awake and aware. And as the Buddha said, awareness is the Lord of everything. And so when we defer to this awareness as the gift that we oftentimes don't notice, the awareness just smiles and says, I love you. You're doing the best you can with what you have. And in that smile, in that love, in that admonition, we are liberated to express and reveal and discover a life that is yet unexpressed. Emerson says, only the coming is sacred. The past is history. The future is a fantasy. So could we embrace the coming, the emerging evolution within ourselves and knowing that it will outpicture in the world? I hear Ken Burden's version, there is no them, there is only us. And when we begin to see that, we change the way history is made. We no longer consider people inferior. I saw that Dancing with the Stars had one of their female dancers as a drag queen. And I said, oh, it's about time. Expressing the diversity on our planet Earth. And so maybe there are glimpses that we get that we're coming together in a greater expression of the one life so that we might celebrate and honor each other through diversity, through equanimity, and through playful curiosity. Huh with so much gratitude for the blessing exists between the space. We recognize there really is no space. Rumi says out beyond the ideas of right thinking and wrong thinking, there is a field, a space. And he says, and when the soul lies down in that field, words are not necessary. Even the idea each other does not exist. And so that is the space, that is the field that we bless in which we find ourselves alive, at home, at one, in the one that knows no other. And so from that sweet, innocent, playful place of oneness, 
which every baby knows. I invite you to go back to your original innocence, open your eyes, open your eyes, now look around, see your face. That's all you, there's only one here. You're the big baby of the universe. You can cry, you can poop in your diapers, or you can make something out of yourself. It's up to you. I'd get a motorcycle and ride around the country with my son. That's what I would do. Anyway, there's a sign-up sheet if you want to do the Little Emerson class for four weeks. And um, there's a basket in the back of the room. And that's all she wrote. listening to our podcast. For more information, visit our website at www.cslhuntsville.org.